Hi guys, welcome to the Great Podcast. My name is JJ Kaboy. Um, I'm a junior health and human performance major here in Berea College and also chairman for um, BRAID. If you guys don't know, BRAID stands for Building Revolution, Anti-Imperialism, and Dissent. And um, with us, um, this is episode 12 now, and um, we have Tyrell, Aiden, and Ashley. Now, I'll let them do their introductions, especially if you're new. And um, if you guys... Um, don't know. Um, you guys can find us on Facebook and Instagram. My Instagram page is Bray.Berea. And you can also subscribe to us um, and my follow page, where it's through um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, and Google Podcasts. And with that, um, I'll let uh, Tyrell, Aiden, and Ashley um, get their introduction. So let's start with Tyrell. Yeah, I'm Tyrell. Um, I'm a second year. A psych major and a bio minor. Um, I'm the chairperson for Socialist Liberia, and I am a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Hey, y'all. I'm Ashley. I'm a sophomore at Berea, also in grade Socialist of Berea and the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Hi, my name is Aiden. Uh, I am a part of uh, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. I'm not a student, <laughs> um, but yeah. I definitely want us to um, kind of start with, I would say, the largest general strike in human history that, especially you're here in America, uh, you might not know about. So, um, yeah, so pretty much like that, uh, this is currently ongoing, by the way. And, but like starting at like the end of November and the beginning of December, there's a farmer strike in India. Um, where about 250 to 300 million um, people participated in the general's rights um, to Delhi. Um, most came from um, the district of Punjab, um, which is on the north um, west end of India. And it was mostly like organized by the um, Communist Party in India, um, Marxist with um, some of the um, protests that's um, come around. And like I said before, it's the um, largest in human history. And like, this farmer strike is to um, goes against the um, anti-farmer um, bills that have been passed down um, by the Modi government. And I'm going to break down um, the three bills that were passed um, in Parliament, um, which why some of the farmers are uh, protesting. Why this is such a big deal? So I'm gonna start with the um, Farmers Produce Trade and Commerce um, Bill of 2020, and what this bill does is um, it promotes interstate trade, but um, this allows farmers from trading stock um, anywhere except for in government-mandated markets. But the thing is that India doesn't have the infrastructure to do this, which in turn will increase um, the pay and the cost of production to. Um, farmers and this also dismantles like the non-standing systems of uh, minimum support prices and least farmers pretty much at the mercy of like agribusiness so think of general bills or like large industrial agriculture plants because all three of these bills are go in favor of like agribusiness and um, large corporations uh, to come into India and take over like the market so they're pretty neoliberal um, bills that are passed. And 
going down to the second bill, which is on the Essential Commodities Amendment Bill, and eradicates uh, limits on supplies on stock and deem formerly essential um, products like cereals, also oil seeds, onions, uh, potatoes, rice, sugar, etc. as unessential, and it does not um, cap the amount of product um, giant multinational companies can keep, um, which leads them to dominate the market and leave um, little space for small farmers to sell their own crops. I'll go to like the last bill, which is the Farmers Empowerment and Protection um, Agreement of Price Assurance and Farm Service. In rhetoric, this bill creates more opportunities for farmers to contract their um, produce for buyers, well, two buyers, excuse me. But the thing is, like, it only benefits farmers with um, a little bit, with a ton of land, um, because 80%, 86% of Indian farmers own little to no land, which further entrenches like the gap in contracting um, opportunities for small farmers, and which is essentially on contract farming. And contract farm- farming only benefits um, farmers who own a ton of land. And it's mostly like multinational um, corporations like Monsanto, for example, who like control like giant like acres of farm acres of farmland, while like most like Indian farmers like own very little um, in terms of land. And just to put it to better perspective, um, more than fifty percent of Indian farmers are in debt, with over ninety ninety six percent of farmers barely making ends meet. And like within that um, segment, 61%, there's a 61% increase in farmer debt in Punjab over 30 years, um, which has led to over 900 plus farmer suicides in Punjab in the last two years and over 20,000 plus overall in India. Um, 60% of India's population relies on farming and agriculture for survival. And I keep mentioning Punjab um, only because that Punjab and Pujan Sikhs in particular have been consi- consistently uh, undermined and marginalized um, by the Indian government, specifically like the Modi government. And just to like give you like more statistics, 93% of Punjab's land is used for farming, and pretty much the most um, fertile and fertile soil in India. Like 55% of, um, of Punjab's employment um, is in the agricultural sector. And in the midst of like all of these protests, it's, always, it's been met with police violence. And to put into perspective, 50% of Sikhs make up Indian military, but um, Sikhs are only 2% of the population. And just to like um, sum up some of the demands like the farmers and um, the Communist Party of India are the complete repeal of all three bills that are going to end up turning the laws and the payment of 7,500 rubies in the accounts of each um, non-tax paying family, a monthly supply of 10 kilograms of food to needy families, the expansion of mongrels to um, include yeah, 200 work days each year, increase of wages and extend the Act to where um, industries stop privatization of public and financial sectors, uh, pensions for all jobs, and abolishing um, premature retirements or 
um, farmers of government and public sector employees. This is like a combination of neoliberal policies um, that are frankly anti-worker, anti-working class by quite frankly the fascist Modi government. I want to like just like get a further um, understanding in terms of um, agriculture and how it's important to understand that revolutions are always about land. And most people like think about like overturning systems and things of that nature. Um, and even in the context of, um, excuse me, indigenous folks, we always have to think about land when we're talking about not only just like through revolutionary beings, but also by the means of which like we govern ourselves and means of like which um, we like our food and natural resources and water. And that's how like the framework that I want to um, express when we talk about just the worldwide agriculture business. And I want to just also shift to um, Peru as well. For the update from our last podcast, pretty much like the far right coup leader uh, Marina resigned. Center right like, politician Francisco Sasuski was sworn in as inter president. And uh, that was just like um, an update um, from our last podcast if you guys want to check it out. But in the context of Peru, uh, Peruvian um, farmers after protesting and um, blocking the Pamarian Sur Highway, which is a central highway in Peru for about five days, forced Parliament to redraw the um, agrarian promotion law, which um, is also known as the Chiplar um, law. Uh, that was pushed by um, Jose and Chiplar Agriman, um, who was the Minister of Agriculture uh, during the Mochi routine back in 2000, uh, which we mentioned in our last episode of the podcast. And um, just to give like a quick background on Chiplar, she's the shareholder, CEO, and president of the Agroexport Agro Kaze, which is um, the leading producers and exporters of asparagus and grapes in Peru, uh, which is the biggest um, agro um, company in the country. It was actually the former um, president of Trasoka um, Corporation, which is a pharmaceutical company um, that Agro Kaze. Uh, used as a subsidy. He was also um, the vice president candidate for Pichimoni um, via um, Pureza, that's the party, and the current um, board director's member of the Central Reserve Bank of Peru. And uh, what the law um, was originally tended to back in 2004 was to be temporary, but had to like give like extensions and modifications. So um, what the extension was, one of the provisions, like the essential law, was given back like in 2031, and Article Four um, stated that the income tax rate for um, um, agribusinesses were cut from 30% to 15%. Article Seven um, had the minimum wage at um, 39.19 um, souls a day, which is in USR is about $10.91. And only gave like 30 vacation days, which um, employers were allowed to hire workers for a limited for a limited period of time. And in Article Nine, uh, it stated that employers only had had to make a monthly contribution of six percent um, towards employees' um, health insurance, uh, which was 
in comparison to some of the earlier provisions, um, it was a lot worse. And clearly, like, it's not enough for um, anyone to survive off of. And, like, the demands from the workers was, like, to repeal the law and, like, increase the salary benefits and compensation of time of um, service, which, which is the CTS, is, like, increase those um, funds. And the formation of a public assembly that will meet with government officials so that, like, all bodies can, like, hear their proposals and meet their demands. Um, but it's also, like, worth noting that, of course, uh, with any sort of um, strike or protest, there's always end up going to be police violence. And it is um, leading to a death of a, um, I wrote about fruit worker, um, Jose Munoz Jimenez, and he was only 20 years old. And just to give, like, more broader context in, like, food insecurity and um, agribusiness, specifically in Africa as well. The European Union's limitations on exports outside um, of the bloc, such as like food, medical supplies, has only led to a big impact on African countries like Kenya, Nigeria, and like the world's biggest exports on grains, which was um, Ukraine, Russia, and India, banned a limit on these supplies, which ends up increasing the demand and increasing the price of food throughout the continent. So like in Kenya, Nigeria, Senegal, like all African countries that like rely on the West to for food, despite having sixty percent of the world farmable land. The continent they import more than they export, and some countries is eighty percent of them they're buying um, imports. But like FTAs, which is like free trade agreements, and the IMF and the World Bank, like all these institutions and forms, they're nothing more than colonial constructions. And there were mechanisms that were used by the U.S. and Europe to restrict and like, decimate African farmers to compete in world markets and dominate them. And this forced African countries to lift custom charges on imported foods, and which further like, decreased the prices for like Africa not to like, sustain itself. Like, like Africa um, is used as a source of maintaining Western life and hegemony, which led to um, debt dependency through the IMF and the World Bank, and pretty much like prevented them from importing food like to their citizens. Which, like like I said, is create like a culture of debt and dependency, and structural adjustment programs from like the IMF and World Bank. Um, like they forced African countries to eliminate subsidies, like for their own farmers, that open all markets for the um, U.S. and Western companies, and pretty much like the phrase that is mostly used is like you know they need to adjust their economy, which is means like free trade and cutting like the public sectors and things of that nature. For example, like in Nigeria, despite like being like the richest African country, there is like a 180 percent increase in malnutrition and increase in the number of infant mortalities. And it's interesting to see because, depending on perspective, like the U.S. like gives like $200 billion in government subsidies to their farmers, um, which is accessible for the subjugation um, for um, African folks. I think it's also important to kind of talk about the Green Revolution. So to give a better background on what the Green Revolution is. So the UN and like the Bill Gates Foundation, the IMF World Bank, like this is a sponsored plan that 
gives like smallholder farmers appearance like turn uh, smallholder farmers into industrial farms. So like using the seeds and fertilizers from like Western agribusiness like Monsanto and which ends up leading to destroying the ecosystem because these seeds, they just destroy the land, whatever they're um, made and that sort of thing. So example of that is um, Nerica, which is a commercial rice um, growing program. And it's caused like ground to be like unfarmable and forces uh, farmers to deplete like their funds. And pretty much like they have to like buy like, supplies like from the um, agribusinesses. And like, there's been like studies like from the UN that shows like throughout like 12 years um, the yields of crops haven't like seen any significant uh, increases. And like the number of undernourished people have increased by 30% um, in, in the various participating countries throughout the continent. So Kenya, for example, like they really, they rejected a um, COVID loan from the IMF because, like, due to, like, the exploitative, like, terms within um, the contract. And, like, Nigeria and Senegal, along with, like, 13 other West African countries, they pretty much refused to pay their debts. They demanded, like, outright cancellation of their debt just due to the austerity measures and exploitative measures um, of the IMF and the World Bank. Yeah, I think the examples in um, India and Peru are... They're a really good way to show people that mass organization and um, workers strikes and farmer strikes actually have power. And especially when that power is associated with the land, the land is literally critical to our survival. So we must protect it at all costs. And also it reminds me of an idea that Frantz Fanon brought up in The Wretched of the Earth. And he says, for a colonized people, the most essential value because the most concrete is first and foremost the land the land which will bring them bread and above all dignity. And yeah, I just want people to remember that we need land and also we need to organize around our land. I was Tyrell. just gonna add on to Ashley a little bit and just say that this year has been uh, really shown us that it's true that where capitalism is the weakest, that's where revolution will begin. Definitely, especially in colonized and post-colonized uh, areas. These struggles are what's going to bring about revolution in these places because they're they're able to rally people in a way that just we haven't seen before, and it was really it's really cool, or that we have seen before, just we haven't seen in this era, I suppose. You know, I just said, like you said earlier, this is probably the first time most people are probably hearing about this, and this just goes to show that the revolution won't be televised. Um, is very, very true. I mean, this is the largest labor strike in the world in India, which had 250 million people. I mean, I read that if they um, decided to make their own country, they would have been the fifth largest um, populated country in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. And like, just like give like um, further context, specifically in like Zimbabwe. Um, this is Zimbabwe under like... Um, Robert Mugabe, further back into the 90s and even like the 2000s, when they refused like to um, pay um, their debt from the IMF and the World Bank, and in 2001 they thought they fought back against the IMF uh, privatizations by bringing their uh, land into public ownership. 
um, under their land reform program, um, peasants um, actually got the land that was originally um, occupied by white settlers. This ended up leading uh, to economic sanctions by the U.S. and Europe um, that are currently st- that are still in place. So, like anything related to agriculture, any product from a farm that was once owned by a white settler would not be accepted anywhere else in the international market, um, which makes farmers not supported by their own government. And sanctions like also like prevent aid from even reaching um, farmer like work farms in Zimbabwe, and which kind of shows you that even like the UN, who like they say they like condemn sanctions, but they've been a influ- influential backer of like the global north pro- pro-capital neoliberal and one-sided policies um, in Africa and more broadly the global south which exacerbates the impact of um, climate disasters and um, increase um, by Western dependency on aid and like highs of conflicts like within the continent. And even just like to like really like segue into like how like NGOs in um, Africa, like um, they like promise aid and like they try to be, I would say white saviors. Oftentimes like, they never really come in and actually bring in the material aid that's like needed, and um, they still like further destroy like African communities because like nine percent of NGOs in Kibera, which is in um, Kenya, um, are U.S. or U.K. based. So it kind of like still goes to show you that like the West, like and like all these like NGOs and missionaries that come through like the global South, they do not care like fully they might they might think that they care but in reality it's just more so for western dominance for western imperialism it's aid with strength attached and this like this kind of goes to the vein of like what thomas sakara talks about his idea that uh, western aid it like controls like western dependency like thomas sakara always talks about like one who feeds you controls you and that uh, um western aid it's always with strength attached and the importance of products being like made in a nationalistic like pride you know what i mean like um all products coming from like burkina faso um is for um like folks in burkina faso and i feel like that's like what the great tenets about like pan-africanism is like it fosters that camaraderie like among africans to move on the non-socialist um, part of Venezuela, um, also known as the PSUV, they want a substantial amount of seats um, in the National Assembly or parliamentary elections. Um, so on December 6th, um, Venezuela had their National Assembly elections, and the PSUV and the GPP coalition parties won over 67% of the vote. The opposition parties um, won 20% of the vote, and though there was a 32% of voter turnout, um, I also want to put this in perspective um, because um, there's actually a far-right boycott of the elections and um, the U.S., um, so Pompeo and Trump, before the votes were even counted, um, they were like dismissed the elections as like undemocratic and those were the needs for regime change and like, you know, being the terms of imperialism, you know, the typical U.S. shit. And um, <laughs> it's interesting because... Um, in 2018, as far as midterms, the midterm voter turnout um, for 2018 was at 50, 50%, percent, 
which is the highest since 1914 in the United States. But because usually um, midterms that are turned out is abysmal, it's still relatively low. It's usually around like 35 to 40 percent, um, just depending on the year. So 30, like 32 percent, like one of these people like coming out of it's not that far in the U.S. And considering like the voting apparatus. And like the resources for front fans for like compared to the US, which is not to compare, it's not that bad. So like to go further down to the election, PSEV uh, actually re- regains control of the um, parliament after five years of right-wing control um, of parliament. And like I said before, the US and the West preemptively rejected the results when the results were debated. Um, and Juan Guaido, everyone's favorite puppet. Um, leader, maybe believe leader, ended up leading the election and boycott despite his political allies being against this um, going out of the election. And he's no longer a National Assembly member, which that was like the grounds of him declaring himself president because he was um, a National Assembly member and pretty much the opposition pretty much like threw all their political leverage onto him, even though he's like a far right um, leader that has generally no support. <laughs> And like in Venezuela, um, other than you know the ruling class there, and like I think it's like one thing to also know that private corporations um, raise the cost of like basic goods and like proteins, and like the far right capitalists like privatized public resources and sunk the economy. And I'm and what I'm like referring to is like kind of the conditions in which Venezuela is now. It's not just simply like um, Maduro's like fault or he's like solely to blame for you know the conditions because like also U.S. sanctions cost Venezuelans around six billion dollars since 2017 and that the calls for saying that like Venezuela doesn't have free press or like there's no freedom of speech like it's kind of goofy because like this like free press of Venezuela is always open to criticism of the government in terms of like the impact of like U.S. sanctions. Like U.S. sanctions, like, they prevent other countries from trading with Venezuela under the threat of U.S. sanctions from said countries that want to engage in business with Venezuela, which lead to limited access to basic goods, decreased production, and decreased purchasing, purchasing power, and pretty much um, the lack of running of, like, refineries to produce oil and gas due to these um, sanctions. So in the context of par- parliament and, like, the National Assembly... The like PSV won like 253 seats out of 277 seats available this election cycle. And like just to give like a um, broader context of like how um, the voting process is. Um, so you can pretty much vote in four ways. So the regional party list, the national party list, individuals by district, and like the indigenous representation. And like the seats of the party list are allocated by the proportional representation. The district votes were also determined by um, a first uh, pass-the-poll method. So pretty much PSEV ran a rough shot and the majority of seats have been um, filled. So you want to see PSVU control. And this kind of like shows you that, um, like we said in reference to Bolivia, is that like electoralism in countries like Cuba or Bolivia or Venezuela 
there's already like a national base and there's already like a base of um voters that want to continue like the the socialist gains and I like the Bolivarian um revolution in reference to you know Bolivia and Venezuela which is definitely not a case in the U.S. because the U.S. there's no such thing as a left. There's no such thing as like a vanguard party or anything like that. So like electoralism, it just doesn't work because you really have literally two imperialist parties and there's not really a, anything distinctive between the two. So electoralism kind of falls on its face. I just want to say like when I look at Venezuela, it honestly makes me hopeful for the change we can do here in the United States because I just see like people in Venezuela and they they're keeping their revolutionary spirits up and they're not like U.S. imperialism or anything stop them from demanding change and yeah I guess they're good to look at um, when we want inspiration I guess for what we should how how we should organize here yeah um, I was just gonna echo what you were saying and how electoralism here especially in America is just not working because we don't have that party we don't have that workers party that can take control or that vanguard party that can work as a voice or a tool through which the proletariat can work through electoralism because if we had that like in venezuela or china cuba wherever we we could use electoralism but here we just don't have that sort of power leverage and third party candidates are always doomed to fail Every like institution in the United States is inherently a rights supremacist institution, it's a rights supremacist relic that is always been rooted in anti blackness and always rooted in the subjugation of um, workers, uh, specifically black and indigenous folks. And like with that, I just kind of like want to segue to specifically like how the death penalty, the way it's enacted in the United States, is always rooted in anti-blackness and rooted in you know um, white supremacy. And I also want to talk about a specific um, police brutality case up in um, Columbus that I feel like most people should um, definitely could bring up to speed. So um, Casey Goodson, he's a um, 23-year-old. Um, Columbus, Ohio native, who um, unfortunately was passed um, due to um, a U.S. Marshal um, task force bet and um, Franklin County um, Sheriff's deputy. I, mean, I believe the same was he was the 17th vet um, in the um, Sheriff's Department. And like pretty much like what read down with that, Gibson was returning home from his disappointment with his um, keys in the door with a subway sandwich in his hand. He ended up getting like, shot three times to the back. When he says on worth his grandmother and like two dollars in the house, and what the CBD admitted that um, wasn't wasn't like the person that they were um, looking for because um, they were currently under investigation because like they're currently trying to look for someone, but um, they end up justifying the shooting, and um, so the police claimed that Wilson was driving down the street by waving a gun and that a deputy confronted Woodson and the interaction quote-unquote went badly. Um, but just to um, give, give context, um, like CBD has been accused in the past about um, lying about um, police um, killings with like the same story about, you know, waving guns. And I won't put a reference like two specific names. Um, um, so a 16 and 13 year old kids by the name of um, Julius Tate and Tyree King 
Um, and those are, you know, the typical storyline that CBT would use. And those two were just examples of that. And like, let me sh- um, share what actually indicted by a federal grand jury for three civil rights violations for um, being a pretrial detention. So we know like this department is already spotty in terms of like their credibility. Um, and um, the reason why they're trying to like, justify and try like you know frame Wilson is that like he had a concealed carry permit as like I said police like tried to um, strategically like frame Woodson by I'm mentioning like the weapon and how it's like being recovered like at the um, side of the scene at the crime scene excuse me um, I mean like the location or the status of um, the weapon and like just like to like put like the name of the face um, like wasn't like the oldest of ten children, and like was working as a truck driver, and you know working at Gab, and he was like a family person, and I just wanted to like add like that, um, part of humanity because as we've like reported in the past with the podcast, but like when it comes to like police shootings and other things, we often forget you know um, the names to the face or like just kind of like um, a lot of these folks. Um, that have been like because of police violence, like it could easily be me. It could easily be like folks that we know, and like um, they're just as like regular people um, as like the rest of us. Yeah, just, like, um, I just wanted to go back I mean? to the case of Brandon Bernard because I feel like people realize that nobody deserves mm-hmm. to die at the hands of the state or this settler colonial empire, but they don't realize that just because someone committed a crime, the death penalty is the same thing and they still don't deserve death. And also on the topic of abolition, people justify the death penalty um, as like, it gives closure to the family. But I think when we look at abolition, we can think about like restorative justice and that closure can come through that process. So like getting closure for the family isn't a valid reason to end the human life. I was just going to add that um, just with the Brandon Bernard case particularly, I've seen a lot of, um, especially the Black Lives Matter community, sharing um, images of him in a very positive light. And obviously, since his record, a lot of negative um, retortion have come out of that. And frankly, I just wanted to make the point that um, it is not in the place of white people to tell black people when and how and you know, who to mourn over. It is our place and who we decide to mourn for. And frankly, under a system that is designed to kill black lives, let us mourn. We shouldn't like cheer when the, you know, kill a good one or or kill the right one or whatever the fuck you want to call that. You know, this is a time for us to, you know, this is our mourning time and it's really not a fucking white person's place to tell us, you know, don't be fucking sad because Brandon Bernard was a murderer. Like, that was the fucking point, you know? Right. Like, I don't know, that, that was just really, really bothered me because, um, like, though, like, everyone was, like, in, like, in mourning and support of, like, Ivory Renard. Um, literally, like, that next day, um, Ivory, um, Bourgeois, uh, he, he ended up getting, like, executed, like, literally like, that next day. I'll, like, I'll, like, I'll run down what exactly he got executed for. So, um... He was, a, he was a truck driver, and, like, um, he was executed on December 11th for the um, 
torturer and as a two-year-old daughter. He has um, a intellectual disability, which um, people can't be put on death row or even like executed if having a um, intellectual disability. Um, what's interesting about it is that the Fifth Circuit Court uh, denied his claim back in 2013, and he couldn't like you know argue for death that reason against it. So it was already trial court back in 2013 for that. And um, so, according to my like, two court documents, um, I should probably put a trigger warning about this if we're talking about like torture and abuse and sexual abuse as well. According to, doc- according to the court documents, um, Bujar allegedly sexually abused his daughter, um, forcing her to like sleep in her um, training toilet, and um, ripped her with a electric cord and um, ripped her feet with a cigarette lighter, and ended up I'm here with a blast clip bat so hard that. Um, her head actually swelled up and refused to give her medical treatment. And, um, like, so, like, um, one day, like, um, Bujol was angered by her, um, toilet training, and he ended up grabbing her by the shoulders and slamming her head on the window dashboard. I think it was, like, about four times, and he ended up dying from her injuries. Like, in, like, the context of, um, abolition, and even in the, like, the fact that, like, he had, like, a, um, intellectual disability, no one should be put to death especially by the hands of the state and even kind of like shows you how even with um disability maybe talking about disability justice too like there's no support or um actual like humanely left for disabled folks and like folks often forget about that and always want that to keep that in mind because even when we like talk about the in the context of brand bernard too just to give like you know uh, background like the Trump administration resumed federal executions back in June and ended up killing um, was currently now 11 people including on um, Bernard like within like six month time frame and on um, Bernard's death on December 10th was actually on the International Day of Human Rights how, how ironic right and was like the youngest person to be federally educated um, in 70 years and the first execution during a lame duck presidential period um, and that was like the first in 130. And Trump is on track for um, 13 executions, which actually is um, the most in the past 67 years combined. And um, another interesting portion in terms of Bernard's case is that President Obama actually was lobbied to commute um, Brandon's sentence back in 2016, but he, he ended up refusing to do so. To give like you know further context to. Um, the circumstances which led Bernard to death row that he was like involved uh, in the death of Stacy and Todd Bagley back in 1999, and like his only like involvement in terms of that is that he ended up like destroying the evidence by pouring gasoline in the car of Bagley, where the couple was shot by um, Christopher Villain, who was 19 at the time. Bernard was 18 at the time of the crime, and. Christopher Filling was the one of eleven that was actually executed. He was executed back in September. Out of like the five, like there was like um there's the sixteen year old and like two others that were like fifteen at the time as well. And Bernard, he was not even like evolved uh, in terms of like him actually, you know, killing um the couple. And like there was um a national push, of course, um to clemency. Um Previously, give Bernard life without parole, but the Supreme Court denied the petition of execution. I think the count was like six to three. And here's the kicker about this: is that 
five of the living jurors of, of the case, and including the prosecutor that forced a death sentence on both Chris, Christopher and um, Brandon. They ended up changing their minds and you know, trying to push like clemency forward on, on Bernard. And they ended up like, changing their views on like the death penalty. And like Brandon became like a youth advocate who like told his story through the project, the Alignment Tour. And um, it wasn't until like 2018 uh, the defense learned that the trial prosecutor was withholding evidence that would have um, exonerated Brandon. And that's what like kills me, just because like I want to say you know you know fuck the jurors and like the uh, fuck the prosecutor for you know enacting that level of evil for someone who didn't even, like kill anybody, and like they didn't deserve to be in death row in the first place. And uh, even like when we talk about death row, a lot of youth. Um, 18, 19, 20 year olds is relatively young guys that like start out in that grow. And the majority of them are black and Hispanic. And even as we like talk about how um, most of them, even like in Bernard's case, it was mostly an all white jury that are part of these trials. And a lot of times, black and Latinx folks, they kind of they didn't commit and like DNA evidence that wasn't presented or the testimonies were botched. Um, they end up being death row and getting killed by being innocent. Even like after like reading like, other bourgeois and case, like no matter how horrifying and gruesome it is, like he shouldn't be put to death for that. And because like I'm not, I will be honest with y'all. Like I was trying like to grapple in the context of abolition because abolition is hard. Abolition stuff like even like most like egregious portions. Like I mentioned in the last podcast, like, I don't believe, like, restorative justice and abolition is necessarily for, like, capitalist or, like, white supremacist or folks like that. I don't necessarily, I don't really believe that. I mean, that for people who's, like, not the most trauma and try to, like I said, it's a practice. It's not something that's going to fix everything. I feel like abolition is, like, a continual process to be in the community and hold each other accountable. And, like, something like, like, bourgeois, it feels like, given, like, the actual mental and, like, the tele-rehabilitation needed, probably this wouldn't happen, you know? With abolition and the concept of abolition for all, I would just like to reiterate, it's a process because, like, like before you think about abolition, you're like, well, like, these people do deserve, like, to have some type of like repercussions for their actions, but at the same time, like there are no redeemable qualities for in this criminal justice system and the criminal justice system here that we have in place right now isn't the way to handle it. So we do have to think about abolition for all. I think oh, I agree with anything? all of you guys or that, I mean, just and, that ab- and that perhaps abolition for all is something that can't happen under the capitalist structure and we have, and healing will have to take place in a, under a structure that isn't abominable like this one. Yeah, and, like, to go further into, you know, the bubble cesspool that's in the United States. Um, so, in terms of COVID, like, as we like to hear right now, there were, like, 17.6 million cases, like, skyrocketing. And with, like, the mass amount of deaths, looking at, like, yesterday, like, the highest amount of cases and hospitalizations, and even, like, Wednesday, when you see, like, over 3,600-plus folks dying every day just from COVID, even in the like, midst of a vaccine, which like I'll dive into later, it's I don't know. It's just wild to me because this like I wouldn't I wouldn't even call it stimulus bill because when you're like offering like six hundred dollars, like to me that's just like, unconscionable. Like considering after like what nine months 
of like no like relief for like most Americans and the fact that like protected over like forty million people are going to be infected by the end of the year with like five, six million that are most likely going to get evicted like in the beginning of twenty twenty one. Just to get like six hundred dollars like for relief like just for COVID relief is just absurd. But somehow Congress can pass like a seven hundred forty billion dollar national defense budget for the fucking Pentagon. It's like yeah, it's like the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Like they can somehow find free money for the military, but somehow to actually, you know, care about their own citizens, somehow you have to give, like, breadcrumbs. Even when, like, um, folks like AOC or Elian Omar kind of discuss, like, on Twitter all the time, talking about, oh, this needs to be better and all those things. Like, y'all in Congress, y'all can do a lot better. You know what I mean? Like, like go do, like, exactly what you claim y'all are doing. You know what I mean? Like, it, to me, it's just kind of wild to, like see the lack of action that that's like happening especially from these like faux quote-unquote progressives because it's like it's like i said before there's no such thing as like a left in america and like folks like aoc and like quote-unquote progressive folks they don't really are they but like grifters because they always like fall line to like the establishment um, party and we've seen that with aoc a lot folks are dying left and right and they have, like, determined action to do something. Because, like, 1200 wasn't even enough, like, back during, like, the, the summer. And just, like, a one-time payment. Yeah, you expect folks to somehow survive when things are a lot worse with, like, less than half of that. Like, it's nothing but unconscionable and just flat-out evil. So, we actually got, like, two authorized vaccines currently now. And I want... So, both, like, the Pfizer biotech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine uh both have been approved by the FDA and CDC for emergency authorization use. And as we saw like this week, um, like um, millions of doses have been passed throughout the country as like essential workers and um, healthcare workers and folks on the front lines that are you know, the first to uh, get a vaccine. And even just to kind of even talk about that specifically. So I was looking at this this morning, how like I'm Stanford healthcare worker, um, protesting on striking just due to Stanford's distribution of the uh, vaccine, which put like faculty and attending attending staff that haven't been in the front lines that they've been just been like working from home. They're the ones who end up getting the vac- vaccine first, but not the essential workers that have been like in close contact with the most risk with COVID. And similar things that happen where folks cutting in front of essential workers and healthcare workers such as um, like Congress and NYPD and um, folks from Wall Street that are like trying to, you know, kind of line to get in the front line of the vaccine too. I'll go further into that, but I just want to talk about specifically about the differences between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. So both like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, they're both mRNA vaccines um, with about 95% efficacy. With the Pfizer vaccine, like it's two doses, but um, the time between doses is three weeks while with Moderna is four. The cost per dose um, is $20 per dose for a Pfizer vaccine, while the Moderna is between $32 to $37 per dose. In terms of storage, uh, and this is like a very essential part because this affects distribution. So with the Pfizer vaccine, the storage needs to be between negative 70 to negative 80 degrees Celsius. But with like Moderna, um, it only needs to be around 
15 to 25 degrees Celsius um, for like the storage, and that and that has um, major implications for distribution because the Moderna vaccine is easier to be distributed in rural areas where there isn't like a major hospital. But Pfizer is going to be harder for rural areas to store um, the vaccines, at least like in their facilities. The side effects um, are typical with any other vaccine for both. So like, like usually fatigue, headaches, aches, especially like at the ejection site. Over 85% of the supply for the Pfizer Moderna vaccines have been bought mostly by the West. And I'll dive in more into that in terms of the distribution is. But I think it's also important to note that even with the um, clinical trials, so like for Pfizer, for example, there's over like 44,000 like, people that, that took the study while like in Moderna it's like 30,000. It's important to understand that I myself who looked at the data for both Pfizer and Moderna and looking at how like the immunity like response showed for day 10 for Pfizer and, and day 15 for Moderna, like clearly shows like the vaccine works and based on like the graphs and the data that I looked at, like it shows that like both these vaccines are safe. So with that, I want to kind of debunk some myths that I've seen about the vaccine. So like a myth about the vaccine would be like, oh, the vaccine was rushed and it pretty much was fast-tracked and disregarded by testing steps, which is completely false. Since like, the clinical trials included like 30 to 60,000 subjects, all of them didn't like surpass any like security checks or anything like that. And plus like with, though this is like the first mRNA like vaccine, um, the actual technology has been developed for over like 30 to 40 years. And but it's only been like applied to like COVID because like the mRNA technology it hasn't been tested like in influenza and Ebola like since like 2013. So like the technology has always been there, so it's just been applied mostly to COVID. And like a major like reason why things have gone by smoothly is because like the mass amount of funding and like the mobilization was the cause for you know the speed of like COVID in terms of like treatment and testing to be like this fast and so quickly. Because like in normal um, for like normal vaccines, like usually the development and like the testing and all those things usually takes about like five years to a decade. But it's honestly like for me as like um, STEM age person, this is like a medical miracle and a scientific like miracle that's also like really exciting to see. It's also like important to recognize the sci- not only the scientific achievement, but understand that due to like the funding and mobilization, um, for COVID, this real whole pandemic is amazing that like we are able to have two functioning vaccines within a year, which is outstanding to look from like that perspective. Like another myth that that I've seen is that like oh the vaccine will give you COVID. It's like uh, no, that's not true. <laughs> so it's impossible because like I said from the clinical trials, it shows that the protection starts at ten days after the first dose, and like the way that mRNA Really, like the vaccine works is that like it uses the genetic code to make like the proteins that are like shown in COVID. So like if you look at the di- like diagrams for COVID, you see like the red like spikes that's you know such a COVID. So literally, the mRNA is literally the genetic code to make the said protein. 
it's not literally like COVID itself. No, it's literally just like they end up making the genetic code for it. And it's not like the DNA, it's literally just the mRNA for it, which is really just outstanding. But I also like, want to um, also talk about and also like reassure um, folks that over like 90% of the subjects who got the vaccine were protected from COVID in comparison to those who took the placebo. But I also want to like keep in mind that like what we don't know about like the vaccine is like the duration of the immunity, um, which as we know right now is currently five to six months, but we don't know if it's like a yearly thing. So, or how it affects kids under 16 or pregnant women. Cause like they're, those two populations were not included into the study. But I also want to dive into like another myth that I've, I've also like heard around it was how like MRA vaccines are dangerous and alter DNA, which is no, <laughs> it's impossible for RNA vaccines to alter our DNA because the M- mRNA vaccine is more likely than not like a safer from others since there's no live virus included in the vaccine. And it's definitely not safer for you to, to get the corona. So I just I just want to let folks know it's like it's better for you to get the vaccine than to get actual corona. Because <laughs> it's not a disease agent. The vaccine is not a disease agent. And this agent is just to like um give you give your immune system a response. It's pretty much like to spark it up. Like I said before, it's like the virus is we're using the virus genetic code. It's not like the live virus or anything like that. In comparison like to the, the flu and like the measles months of rubella, which is the MR vaccine effectiveness. So like for the flu shot, like the efficacy is usually forty to sixty percent and like the MMR vaccine is usually ninety seven percent. Specifically for measles, rubella, and 88% for mumps. The flu shot is just a, an activated virus, while like MR is usually a live augmented vaccine. So like in comparison to those two, and then the um, mRNA, even though it's like the first one to be seen, like this is like a great scientific advancement. Like what's next? Like what's exactly we're going to see in terms of distribution and that sort of thing? Like distribution is going to be a main problem like I mentioned before, in terms of packaging and keeping, like, those, like, Arctic temperatures for the vaccine, specifically with the Pfizer. So, like, when you add the Moderna, which can be, in comparison, be stored in much warmer like, temperatures in, in comparison to Pfizer, you're going to see easier ways to distribute um, in rural areas, for example. And that's going to be, like, uh, major roadblocks. And the percent of people who might not want to take the vaccine and that's like going to be the one thing that we're going to see once we get into 2021. And in a lot of that, I also want to like talk about how in the midst of all of this, um, there's actually a waiver um, from um, TRIPS, which is like the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights for like pre- uh, prevention, containment, and treatment of like COVID-19 like supplies. So we're talking about like the vaccines, we're talking about um, some like the testing and the treatments, et cetera. And this, like, waiver was, like, led by India, South Africa, as well as, like, um, Kenya to give to um, the WTO to, like, waive IP rights so that folks in the Global South can make their own generic versions and not, like, weigh on the West um, in terms of um, getting these supplies out. And with the waiver, like, this would suspend the implementation, application, and enforcement um, of intellectual property rights. Um, so pretty much like pa- like patents on pharmaceutical products, for example, and facilitate development and manufacture of 
more and lower cost um, COVID nineteen diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines. But this was denied by the World Trade Organization or WTO, as the U.S. and the West buys up all current um, supply of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which they bought around eighty five percent of the supply. As the global South suffers when that happens, I think global North appears like towards the um, supply chain in terms of COVID vaccine. I really appreciate that you um, took the time to actually debunk some of these myths. And yeah, first and foremost, just I want to remind people like out of all of this, like the vaccine is safe. But at the same time, I know like I've been seeing a lot of like skepticism, especially among the black community um, of the vaccine. And I don't want to um, like downplay their experiences and why they would be skeptical just because um, the U.S. has a history of using medical violence against black bodies. And we can see in like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and like the measles vaccine of 1989 and even like the Henrietta Lacks case that most people know about. Like black people, like they don't really have good experiences in the medical field. And in fact, um, one in three black Americans say they face discrimination in hospitals. But at the same time, the reason why we all need this vaccine is because the pandemic will only end if we all use this as a group effort. So, yeah, I don't want to say like black people don't have a right to be full vaccine, but we need it for our survival. I would totally agree with what Ashley said. Yeah, I just think a lot of we are aren't, aren't already in a good position with vaccine denial just because before COVID, there was already so much of it around. And now there's already, especially with right-wing conspiracy theories and, you know, they're putting vac- chips in our in the vaccine to track us when, you know, we have global tracking devices in our back pockets. But it's just like a lot of, it's just very important that we all do our best to get, and if we can get the vaccine to get the vaccine, because I'm and to try and work as a group to fight this, or it'll, like Ashley said, it'll never be over. Yeah, like I'm glad that you like you mentioned like um, some of the like a skepticism because like I like I said I do not want to like downplay um, any of this and like as like someone within STEM agent within you know health and medical fields like I completely understand that and black folks have like that like right to be skeptical because. Mm-hmm. Maybe like talk about like the anti-vax movement. It comes from a place of like privilege, especially like in America, because like who Mama exactly blogs. is you know sprouting <laughs> a lot of like these anti-vax? It's mostly like suburban white folks that are doing this, right? And like because you even look from like an international sense, vaccines are crucial. Especially the hallmarks of you know science and medical is essentially like needed in like the global south but i also we need because i was also uh, reading about this a couple of years ago about how the cia wherever they were trying to find bin laden um they actually set up a um polio uh, vaccine site um and they pretty much like massive so, like for folks to you know get the polio vaccine like in pakistan it was like in a rural portion of like northern um, pakistan and even afghanistan too what they were doing was not giving people like you know polio like the polio vaccine, but they were actually like getting like blood samples so they can try to find Bilad and try to find close relative and try like to find him. And like wherever like the news broke out, like cases of polio increased because folks did not want to take the vaccine because like they knew it was like they were thinking it was like a CIA plot. 
And, like, it just kind of, like, like, shows you that, at least, like, with black folks and colonized folks who've had, like, justifiable, you know, skepticism in terms of, like, the vaccine. Well, just, like, um, vaccines in general, any, like, medical practices from the U.S. A lot of these, like, anti-vaxxer, like, like, conspiracy theories are always, like, rooted in whiteness. And there's always really, like, this anti-intellectual, anti-science and it's just out of pure emotion. It's not really any basic basis of fact at all. And I just also wanted to also take the time to at least give a better context in which that the this vaccine is going to save lives. Like this vaccine, it's just a beautiful like time in our history to have like a vaccine like within a year. And in the midst of like all this like death and suffering, like I truly hope that my folks can listen to this and like say like at least like lessen their skepticism and like lessen like their fears about this vaccine because i can guarantee you that like folks will be scared and justifiably so but like at the end of the day like when you see like like folks from congress and like trying to and wall street and like a lot of these cops specifically at nypd because i was reading a story about how nypd won't be the first among new yorkers to get the vaccine and like when you see like the West like quarrying a lot of the sales of like this vaccine in particular, it shows you that like it works and mostly a lot of like these conspiracy theories about it, it's um rooted in a place of privilege and kind of falls flat. I kind of think it's funny how like stuff. so many people are like all of a sudden worried about like what's going to be in the vaccine, especially like reactionaries, but at the same time. They allow us to have like food deserts and places like where people can't even get access to nutritious food. So we're literally eating like who knows what in our foods. But all of a sudden, when there's a vaccine that's made to save lives, like everybody's all of a sudden concerned. I was just thinking um, of how people are worried about the vaccine. And then I just saw that thing about the cannibal sandwich and like the raw meat. Like, I could. I I know I sent out a tweet. I was like, man, um, if you ate that, you know, gravy dog food, meat from Taco Bell, you don't need to worry about what's in the vaccine. <laughs> Look, like, I no, I was just like, like, it's, of course, it's, you know, it's like a funny, like, you know, meme and all that. But I was also looking at some people were talking about how, like, you know, um, six like participants yeah. from like the Pfizer vaccine like died and everything, and like people. Were, like, the way that was framed is, like, like oh, they died from, like, the vaccines. Like, no. So, like, when I like, looked into it, like, first of all, four of them were from the placebo group. So, of course, like, no, that's not from the vaccine. And, like, in most, like, clinical trials, when it comes to, like, vaccines or anything, like, that's, like, injected in a needle, the placebo is usually saline. It's literally just, you know, salt and water. So, it doesn't really do anything to you. So, like, the two that, like, that died that were in the vaccine group were, like, in their, their mid or late 60s. And, um, they ended up, like, having, like, a heart-related, um, issue, which the FDA and, like, the CDC, they, like, reviewed it and said, like, oh, it's not from the vaccine or anything like that. And also to so mention about the allergic reactions, um, that's, like, been popping up because i know there's like a case in alaska alaska about like someone got allergic reaction from the vaccine and that's common to see like there's usually like one out of like a hundred thousand in most vaccines to like have like an allergic reaction so it's not like it's something that's not to be expected 
Um, but I just want you to know, hopefully this podcast episode will help people lessen their fears about um, this vaccine. And right, it's a beautiful scientific achievement. Um, and just hope like everyone takes it um, so that I won't say necessarily normalcy because there's, there's no such thing as normal at this point anymore. But at least like lessen the death and misery that we've witnessed this year in particular. I just want to move on to actually Biden's cabinet nominations. And like, I won't go through like every single one because it'll take forever, (laughs) but I will just like highlight a few. And like, just to give you updates from the last podcast, I mentioned uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, which she was part of um, Biden's um, transition team. Uh, She ended up um, getting the nomination for um, UN ambassador. And um, Susan Rice, which among Washington circles was leaned to be um, Secretary of State, ended up being the director of the Domestic Policy Council, which um, runs over like domestic issues. And she's pretty much going to be Biden's top advisor in terms of domestic policy. And one thing I didn't add about Susan Rice, which I didn't realize, uh, was that she's actually a board, uh, board of directors member. Uh, for Netflix. She's been a board director for Netflix since 2018, so that's really interesting to note. But actually, um, the person who ended up getting the second Secretary of State nod was um, Anthony Bingham. And just to give a background for him, is that he was the director of the Senate Foreign Relations um, Committee in 2002, and he actually advised Biden to vote for the Iraq War. <laughs> and um, he ended up helped crafting um, the foreign interventionist uh, policies in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Egypt, and Syria um, when he was in the Obama administration and supported military interventions in um, Libya in 2011 and supported the Saudi Arabian involvement in um, the Yemen genocide and pretty much like the U.S. and Saudi Arabian war in Yemen. The White House chief of staff, um, Nod King, went to uh, Wan Klan who's a um, former chief of staff for uh, Vice President Gore and Biden, and who's also a lobbyist for Fannie Mae from 2001 to 2005, which Fannie Mae was responsible for the 2007 mortgage crisis. And he also buys big financial investment companies for um, pretty much about 30, over 30 years. And he oversaw the 2009 stimulus package that bailed out most of the financial and mortgage companies that I tanked in the first place. So you'll see a theme as like I go through some of these uh, nominations. So so our first white Latino, Secretary of Homegame Security, um, Alejandro Nikorska, uh, he was the former director of the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services, and he was also the deputy secretary during the Obama years. And like the... Um, U.S. Um, CIS, that's different from ICE, is actually like one to three. So you have like ICE, USCIS, and then CBD, which is Customs and Border Patrol. Um, those were like the three like divisions that were that replaced INS like before um, Bush, because that was like dissolving and displaying to like those three. Going back to um, Alejandro, um, he oversaw the, the deportation of 3.2 million immigrants and led the EB-5 visa program which um, allowed wealthy foreign investors to pay literally half a million dollars for a path to like legal residency and was investigated for using the program to benefit 
um, donors and political allies. <laughs> so that's definitely um, worth noting. And the first woman to potentially lead the director of national intelligence, Irva Haynes, um, she was the deputy director of the CIA under the Obama administration and played a key role um, in the surging drone strike count. Um, under Obama. So she pretty much oversaw 542 drone strikes, um, killing over 3,700 people, including 324 civilians. And she was a supporter of actually Trump's appointee for CIA director um, Gina Haspel, who she actually led a black site that tortured prisoners that um, she actually admitted to it. And, and she actually admitted to destroying like a case of like these incidents. From the black site. So as you can see here, like in terms of like foreign policy, this is essentially like a dream team of like imperialism. Yeah, actually to, you know, keep imperialism intact and appears like running smoothly. So you're pretty much like having bets like within you know Biden's circle. And in terms of like national security advisor on Jake Sullivan, who was Biden's and uh, Hillary Clinton's top aide um, during the Obama years, he played a key role in uh, the disastrous decisions in Libya and Syria. Um, he authored many of the WikiLeaks emails, and many that Al Qaeda was um, actually on the U.S. side of Syria, and other emails that shed heavy influence in um, uh, domestic and foreign policy. He also said that Clinton's natural place is to the right in terms of her like political ideology and how like she's like you know against you know clean energy and. Wall Street reforms and workers' rights and just minimum wage increases. Even as we, <laughs> as we go like further down, I know recently um, Biden just uh, picked uh, Mayor Pete <laughs> um, as you know the Secretary um, of Transportation. You know, being you know the uh, first LGBTQ um, person to hold the position. I'll I'll give you all an interesting story. So like as mayor, um, Pete just um, removed traffic lights from an intersection by a public bus stop that kids use to, like, get to their charter school. But, like, whenever, like, a black 11-year-old child ended up, like, dying at that intersection, you actually blame the, blame the kid for drifting across the street. And I'll give you this quote that he said, We seemingly don't know whether it would have made any difference yesterday. Um, moving as two children um, darted across the street at any angle, and one of them outside of the crosswalk was... Um, struck, killed, and like they literally put the like implementing the street lights after his death of his child, knowing damn well that he took him down in the first place. Because in reference to like the charter school, the reason why like kids were going you know back and forth is like they couldn't use you know public transportation to get there, and it's just, it's just like really insidious. Through that, the director of office management budget. I know this is like a minuscule position, but you'll see why I mentioned this person, Nina Antanen. She was on the founder and president of the think tank Center of American Progress, the CAP. She like concealed the identities of the largest donors, um, and she is like heavily funded by like financial institutions like Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, uh, Coca Cola, and like the UAE Saudi Arabian government. And like of course, like in return, like she ended up like downplaying the human rights violations from those two governments. And specifically, like, you know, the torture and murder that, you know, they run through. And she also donated $200,000 to various right-wing think tanks. And she also, like, censors criticism of Israel and the NYPD surveillance of Muslim communities. And also, 
Like this one was really gross. Uh, she also outed a sexual harassment victim uh, that complained about a CAP employee. Even when we talk about Defense Secretary, retired General Lloyd Austin, who, if nominated, he'll be you know the first black man in that position. He was actually a member of the board of directors at Raytheon, and um, he was like a top commander of U.S. forces in the Middle East. He was also the board of directors of a steel production company. Um, it's called um, NeuroCorp, also board directors for Attendant Healthcare Corp and Guest Services, Inc. And also him and Anthony Blanket also had ties to the Pine Island Capital Partners, which is a large investment firm that raised millions and millions of dollars for acquisitions in defense companies. As you see a lot of these ties to uh, defense contractors and foreign policy, you see the fast, like, ongoing slot of imperialism and the uh, vast enrichment of these defense companies, like, coming from, like, the folks that Biden's putting himself into. And even we go, be- go to his nom for agriculture, Tom Vilsack, who was actually the former agriculture secretary under Obama. He's actually the current chief executive for the U.S. Dairy Export Council which is backed by, you know, the dairy industry, has notoriously been dismissive of the needs of Black and Indigenous farmers and Latinx farmers as well. And, like, he's always been, like, a cause of disappointment to these particular farmers and and implemented a, like, poultry inspection system that disregarded uh, workers' safety and only cared about the production speeds and profits of uh, major poultry and meat industries like Tyson, for example. And like just like to run that down, it pretty much like increased like the poultry speed and pretty much placed the special duties from the USDA to the meatpacking employees. It literally like raised the processing speeds from 140 births per minute to 175, which like I said, risked the health and safety of workers and did not address any of the issues that black farmers are facing, such as opportunities for loans, farmers support, and like foreclosures. And just to give like some st- statistics as well, there was a 98% decrease in the number of black farmers from 1920 to 1997. And the mass land dispossession affected over 98% of black landowners. And like the USDA was six times more likely to foreclose on a black farmer versus a white farmer. And this had notoriously ousted a black worker in the USDA. Um, it was on um, Georgia's USDA rural development director and so rights leader um, Shirley Sherrod just based on some false claims circulated <laughs> by Breitbart claiming that she was racist against white people <laughs> a kicker also just to give more like stats so 7% of microloans went to black farmers and less than 0.2% of the USDA's 5.7 billion dollar budget went to black par- farmers and like the average like farm size um, in comparison to like, black and white farmers. So white farmers, on average, had the, farmer, had the farm size of 431 acres, while black farmers only had one or 32. And the USDA has like a dark history of by discriminating and disenfranchising black farmers in the first place. So um, there's been a giant you know, push from like black and um, Latinx um, farmers to try to get Phil Sack out. And even like as recently as like the past couple of days. So Biden's son picked for Secretary of the Interior. Um, I think it's um, Representative Deb Holland. Um, she'll be considered, you know, the first indigenous 
um, person to hold that position. But she co-sponsored a bill that removed protections for Black Natives and Black Indigenous folks by um, you know the slaveholding tribes back in 2019, and those like tribes were like the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, uh, Creek, and Seminole Nations, and like showing like the fast anti-blackness even within indigenous communities and um, the push for um, not only just transparency, but like the push for at least like Holland to be in support of like black natives and black indigenous folks and pretty much like put it into, uh, I would say like these Jim, Jim Crow as restrictions and Jim Crow as like policies that are placed under these indigenous nations. And even like as like early as today, um, Biden's side paid for EPA like administrator. I think his name is Michael Reagan. Like if he's ended up like nominated, he'd be considered you know the first you know my person to hold that position because like he has a mixed record on environmental issues issues failing to like, protect Black and Latinx communities from the like, health impacts of hog farms, uh, which is notorious in North Carolina, and. Um, approving multiple permits for um, the carbon-intensive like wood industries, specifically in North Carolina, because he was the current North Carolina top environmental regulator and worked in the EPA um, as an intern for um, the Clinton Bush administration. So you see, like in the crust of like all this, um, as we mentioned before, intersectional imperialism is still imperialism. Um, intersectional gatekeepers and international like overseers. They're still overseers. They're still uh, war criminals. Uh, just because you put like a black or indigenous face in front of it doesn't make it liberatory at all. Representation does not equal liberation at all. And as you, as I've like laid down like the backgrounds for all these like cabinet picks, like you clearly see like this is like corporatist and immoral as cabinet. Like, and this is not to be surprised, considering, like, as Biden, like, literally pushed for a smaller stimulus package and stimulus bill, like, these folks don't care about you. They really don't. And it's, and you see all these, like, you know, the people who are yelling out, vote, vote, and these, like, vote tubs and all these, like, liberals is like, we can push Biden to the left and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it hasn't even been office yet. He's already, like, him pushing so far to the right, literally not giving a fuck about nobody. And even, like, as, like, you know, these, like, Black Rights leaders, like, in Georgia and, like, the infamous um, Zoom call that he was in pretty much berating a lot of these fun folks because saying like how they shouldn't be disappointed about the parts you've been put on his cabinet. Like he's showing y'all his true colors and y'all just staying there silent, nowhere to be found. So I don't know what to tell you tell folks other than just all this by like saying like this is the most diverse cabinet. It's just the most diverse cabinet that, of overseers. I That's think all is Trump kind of represented a kind of break from the traditional imperialist American hegemony. And the and that was like felt by the people who are like in the high ups and the corporations and in the government. And Biden, I think, really represents a kind of quote unquote return to that good old American imperialism where we're hard on the people we need to be hard on and we're still bombing people and that and it's not and it, it clearly shows with who he's picking. And like you said, it's not doesn't matter that it's intersectional imperialism. He's still going to be a imperialist warmonger 
that attacks and doesn't solve any of the problems that we have going on. Yeah, and also, um, it's hard to tell mm -hmm. people that like intersectional imperialism is bad when most Democrats, like Biden, Biden support, like don't realize how bad any type of imperialism is. Like we have, but first we have to realize like the United States does not represent our interests as working class people or poor people or black people or any kind of, kind of colonized person. So we have to realize that like, as the United States gets more powerful, we get less powerful. So yeah, like Biden's cabinet picks are just going to harm us and the global South and all other nations. Yeah, I agree with everybody's points. I mean, you know, what do we really expect from bourgeois politics or bourgeois democracy? They're just going to keep us giving the same, you know, same shit. Either it's going to be red or blue. Right. So it's really surprising. Right. Like, um, I actually wanted to ask this question to you guys. So, like, how do you guys, like, feel about, like, folks like AOC and, like, Ilhan Omar in terms of the stimulus bill and how, like, they've been kind of, like, reacting? Like, do you guys end up seeing um, how AOC was low-key, like, mad at, like, some progressives that have uh, been pushing her in terms of, like, trying to get a Medicare for all vote? And how they've been, like, on Twitter too much, like, talking about, like, we need the Medicare for all now, especially during a pandemic. We're, like, talking about the stimulus bills, like, oh, five or six are enough, but, like, you're not really doing anything or actually pushing the deal to actually, like, fight for less than breadcrumbs, you know what I mean? Like, so how do you guys overall feel about, you know, that whole situation? First of all, I would just say, like, if you're fighting for the um, liberation of, like, working-class people, you're not going to work for a capitalist institution and try to do that just because like you know they don't represent us so if you really wanted to like fight for us like you'd be like on the ground working but then other than that like yeah like it's just all i can see of them is just like opportunist <laughs> like i can't mm -hmm. actually take them seriously <laughs> i mean all i can say is that i mean are we really surprised that liberals aren't doing anything i mean they they all of they all they do is promise false hope, and then when they actually get in power, because we believe them, they just don't really do anything or say they can't do anything because the Republicans always stop them, or they never use the tools that they have on hand to actually benefit the working class. Because like the Republicans, they are in it for capitalist reasons, for money, for wealth, for power. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree with what everybody said. <laughs> Yeah, like, if, if this pandemic hasn't shown you, like, how useless and how much, like, like, folks in Congress, like, folks in Washington don't give a fuck about any of y'all, like, I don't know what to tell you. Because clearly with, like, as of right now, as they're, like, talking about this, like, measly as uh, stimulus um, bill that they're trying to, like, pass off as. Like, this stimulus bill is literally, like, Whenever, like, you're, like, at a pizza party, right? Especially, you know, whenever, like, we're kids. And, like, they get, like, the, the one pizza that's, like, cut up and squared and everything. They're, they're literally, like, giving, like, the, literally, like, the corner pizza. It was just, like, all crust and, like, no cheese or the toppings or anything. It's just literally just crust. That's what, literally, like, they're trying to pass it off at, as. I think it's not even fresh. It's, like, it's probably, like, stale as hell. Like, that's, like, that's what... Like, these motherfuckers don't care about y'all. And, like, the fact that, like, fucking um, Nancy Pelosi really has the audacity to think this is, like, some good pill, knowing damn well, like, <laughs> back in the summer, 
um, when the Republicans weren't even given an inch, and they were literally like passing off like the same bill that they did back in the summer. Literally, like Stephen Duchin and uh, like Trump administration, like we're saying, you know what, like, like fuck rep- Senate Republicans, um, we're going to just pretty much do everything. Of course, it's going to be like less money. Like we're still going to do, you know, the six hundred dollars like for unemployment benefits. Still going to do the twelve hundred, all that. We go one point seven trillion, and Pierce like do the same thing with the Care Act. Well, like the Democrats, um, they were going for like three billion and like add more like uh, the state and local relief in terms of testing and that sort of thing. And like plus it's like um no because this will give a Trump a win and like Trump might actually you know might win the election because of the stimulus checks and everything. So homegirl Lily played politics just for her to fold and give us like literally the same Republican plan. And even um before like where like Biden won, right? Toshimer was talking about um giving like folks I think it was like fifty thousand, I think it was like fifty thousand like student loan forgiveness, and like without any like Republican pressure. Literally, like, their press literally, like, talked themselves down and, like, literally folded to, like, 10K. Um, like, just after like, a few weeks, and I, I'm just like, what? Like, their press want to fold. Like, that's why, like, they're so fucking useless is because there's, they're not really opposition parties. They just, like, do exactly what the Republicans tell them to do, and they'll just do it. And even you see, like... After nine months of no relief, and they're really going to give you six hundred dollars and expect you to take it. I don't, I don't know what to tell people. Like, they clearly they don't give a fuck about you. Why do you keep investing in systems you know that don't give a fuck about you in the first place? I don't get it, bro. Like, that's what I show you. Like, some of these like politics need to be touched, and like that's how you know they don't fear y'all. That's and that's one hundred percent the truth because, like, if they fear y'all, they wouldn't be starting off with this bullshit like this. Period. Like. Not AOC, not a lot of these, like, uh, progressives, like, nobody. And to me, like, if they actually, like, fear them, like, folks that actually ended up, like, raided their house or, like, some folks actually got their, like, ass beat, they will fear folks, especially, like, folks that are, like, literally starving. Like, folks are literally about to get evicted. Like, folks are literally dying left and right from COVID. Folks are out here struggling and suffering. Like, folks are literally getting thrown out of the street. In fucking winter, and yet they think fucking six hundred dollars is somehow like supposed to alleviate shit. Like niggas just got me fucked up, bro. Like I just think I don't know how. Oh, go I ahead. was just gonna say I think it's funny that they think they're gonna push Biden left, and they can't even do it with AOC, who's supposed to be everyone's like liberal queen. Right. <laughs> like it's like to me, it's just I don't know what the fuck people are like were expecting. I hate being the one to saying like I told niggas so. But I told niggas so. Like, I just really, I just don't understand why folks really feel that, like, oh, we can push by and left. Oh, things are going to be somehow better. It's like, fuck no. They're full on corporatist ghouls. And there's no if, ands, or buts about it. And literally in the midst of, like, death in history, we're literally, like, the, we're about to be, like, at the end of this, like, grueling year. Also, you know, like, also the year of the podcast. Even, like, as, as I, like, reflect on this podcast, seeing all the stuff that I've seen in the beginning of, like, this year, and seeing, like, the mass, like, houselessness, seeing the, seeing, like, the mass, like, death and misery, like, that this um, virus has brought into all of us. And I just don't see any other way other than just, like, a full-on revolt. Like, literally, like, this, like, 
this summer was like the biggest beginning of hope that I saw. Like folks was like, "Man, fuck this, we're like done with this shit." Uh, yeah, you you see like folks like chucking and driving for police. You see like literally live co-opting a movement and literally pulling on revolt because like. I would like go with uh, Arundi Roy says that like the pandemic is a portal. It's a portal of like the infinite possibilities that we see for ourselves to build and reimagine a better world. And I think that's what like 2020 has both like done for me. At least like put myself in that lens and make sure that like we're all we got. We don't have to rely on the West or Washington to, you know, take care of one of us. It's literally, like, the community around us that holds us tight. It's literally, like, the mutual aid um, effort. It's just the survival programs, pending revolution that literally has been holding us together. Like, I think that's, like, the one thing that um, I want folks to, like, keep in mind as we head into 2021. What are you guys' you know, like, reflections of, like, this year and just overall, not just about the podcast, but just, like, your reflections for this year and, like, what you, like, revision not only just, like, yourself, but because of the world in 2021 as we dive into the new year. For me, I can say that, like, this year, like, we started the podcast in January, and I think, like, you can just see me, like, growing if you go back and listen to our older episodes just because 2020 was just, like, such a year that was, I'm not gonna say it was good, but it was good for, like, to radicalize people just because of everything that happened. And also, just overall, this year has taught me that there's no redeemable qualities about this country, and period. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, it's, I I was looking today when I joined the podcast because I was kind of curious, and I joined in March, and that, and I can imagine what I was like in March versus where I am now is long political education lines just because I've done such rapid growing over this past this, this past couple of uh, months, especially with COVID, like Ashley was saying. I mean, like, if anything did something to draw back the curtains of, of capitalism to show, like, the true ruthlessness of it, it was COVID. And it's crazy how much that something like that can propel you into radicalization and how it has projected a lot of people into radicalization and my hopes for 2021 is that continues to happen and that workers and people all over the world just kind of start realizing that the shit's fucked up and we could do something about it yeah just to echo some of the um, comments i'm really really um proud of this podcast from being almost a year old now um i do think we have all grown very, very much since then. And according to Marx, you know, it's only dialectical. It's only dialectical to change. So, yeah, it's been a really, it's been a, it's been a year. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what a year, what a huh? year, man. It's just, yeah, because like, I, even for like myself, myself, like, we been with the podcast back in January. I don't think anyone's would have like thought we would be like surviving up pandemic like this and just like the growth from like all of us and hope like um, folks listening to um, this podcast I've I really hope like um, all of you guys um, grew grew with us and um, constantly uh, learned and unlearned um, throughout this year I hope this year opened your guys' eyes in terms of this capitalist stellar state 
like is not your friend. It's not, this is not the true means of liberation in terms of representation and that sort of thing. COVID has further exacerbated um, the contradictions of capitalism and contradictions of the mythology of um, the settler state. And I feel it's opened a lot of people's eyes. Though, like, we've seen a lot of co-optation. And what that reminds me vividly is <laughs> when you see, like, folks like Nancy Pelosi, like, like leaders from Washington, they're, like, taking knee with, like, Kente Claude and all that shit. Like, um, when you see, like, the past, like, co-optation of a movement, and, like, you know, Washington, you know, the imperialist powers may be um, doing whatever they can to quench and um, dispel um, any sort of resistance. Um, kind of shows you that, you know, we got the power and these powers would do whatever they can to, like, maintain their hold in power. And whether it's, like, the most, like, overt and violent way or whether it's, like, more covert to more covert and have full on counterinsurgencies. Let's be honest. Um, most of like the counter like insurgencies that we've seen, like those kill movements. And it's very important to understand that things will only um get worse because COVID is not going to necessarily go away. Like there's gonna be like furthering um pandemics like in the near future. And like I said before, like um in the beginning of this pandemic, there's no such thing as the sense of normalcy. Even with a vaccine, it's not going to be nothing's really going to be the same after this. And I just hope that folks are willing to go through more revolutionary means, and hope like we can like see more, you know, uh, police precincts getting burnt down to the the ground and um, weather to ashes. And with that, uh, this has officially been a split twelve of the Brave Podcast. I just want you know, um, thank everyone who's listening. To this episode, stick it out. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Snap, and on um, Twitter. I'm um, Instagram is, and Twitter is I'm Jacobboy7. You can easily find me, find me on Facebook, Jacobboy, and my Snap at Jacobboy. Um, you can also find the Braid, it's the page at Braid.Berea, and also on Facebook as well. And with that, um, um, you guys mind. Um, telling our viewers where to find y'all. So, hey y'all, you can follow me on Instagram at underscore Ashley Hunter underscore. Yeah, and you can follow me on Instagram at Tyrell for Stalin. You can find me on Facebook as Aiden Strunk. Yeah, and it's been a wrap, y'all. Like, thank you guys for listening, and um, hope you guys continue to learn and unlearn, and hope you guys have a great holiday season. And once again, thank you guys for listening and supporting us. And we hope to see y'all soon and definitely see y'all in 2021. Hey, we love y'all. Stay safe. And hope you guys have a great holiday season and a happy new year. Peace. And we love y'all. Take care.